Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have Patty Hirsch. Uh, He's here with his debut novel, The Devil's Half Mile. Uh, it's the first, his first novel. Um, it's the first in a series. Oh, it's a murder mystery. It's fiction. But he's previously been primarily known as a journalist and a nonfiction writer. Of course, he's quite famous from NPR's Marketplace. He's also highly awarded. I saw he won the Knight Fellowship, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Sword of Honor. Um, but my goodness, this book has gotten incredibly well-reviewed. I'm not surprised to hear that it's um, already been snatched up as a series. Um, this book has been called tense, violent, twisty, strong, tight, sweeping, engrossing, stunning, satisfying, fascinating, page-turning, vivid, atmospheric, exciting, and superb. Let's please give him a warm round of applause. Wow, so much love in one room. Thank you for coming. I know it's a Saturday. You could be at the beach. You could be in the mountains. You could be barbecuing, but you're here. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. I kind of feel like, um, you know, the World Cup is on right now. I kind of feel this is the this is the last stop in my official tour that Macmillan, my publisher, put together. Uh, so I've been on the East Coast, I've been in the center of the country, and now this is kind of the last the last of the uh, of the, the 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 California swing. So I kind of feel like one of these teams that's come back to its hometown, and I, I, there really should be a bus parked outside so that I can sort of go down the streets and wave to people. That's kind of the way I'm feeling right now. But thank you all very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Some special thanks to my friends Michael and Monica who provided all the booze. So thank them for that. Uh, to Eileen and Karen for helping me set up. And also for Kerry helping me to set up. Kerry, thank you so much. And of course to Skylight Books. This is my local bookstore. We love local bookstores, right? Big cheer for bookstores. Yep. If you're regular listeners to, listeners to NPR, you'll of course know that bookstores are actually on an upswing right now, independent bookstores, which is great news. So keep buying books. Awesome. So let me talk about this book. The Devil's Half Mile, Alexander Hamilton's Wall Street, New York, 1799. A young Irish-American lawyer has returned to New York to find out who murdered his father and why. This young man is called Justy Flanagan, and when Justy arrives in New York, he finds himself teaming up very quickly with a childhood friend, Kerry O'Toole. Now, Kerry O'Toole is the mixed-race daughter of an Irish gangster and an escaped slave. And these are childhood friends, right? He, he knew Kerry when she was young, four years before, when he actually left New York to go to, uh, away to Ireland, to university, and also to spend a little time, a little formative time, with the Paris police. So he returns, and he finds that Kerry is now four years older. When he left, she was 14, so she was a child, but now she's 18, so she's not a child anymore. And this kind of complicates their relationship somewhat. Now, when I was 
when we were talking about the cover for this book, they kept asking me, well, what do these two characters look like? Because we're thinking we might put the characters on the, on the front of the novel, on the front of the book. So I had, to th I had to think about who they look like. So I thought, well, you know, Justy is kind of a little dark and brooding. So he's a little like Cillian Murphy, you know, from Peaky Blinders. But he's also kind of blonde and, and tall, so he's kind of like Army Hammer as well. So if you think about a cross between those two. And Kerry, well, Kerry's a mixed race, of course, and she's, she's tall and she's slender, so kind of like a, a young Lisa Bonet. So there's, there, you, there you have it in your mind about what they might look like. Now, when Justy has returned, he's come back to effectively solve a cold case, which is his, his father's murder, because eight years beforehand, in 1792, America was struck by the first financial crisis, the first great financial crisis to hit America, which was the Great Panic of 1792. And Justy's father, Francis Flanagan, was a wannabe stockbroker who was found hanging in his hallway. And everyone thought, well, of course, he's a stockbroker, he probably gambled too much money, he's lost his shirt, and he's killed himself. But Justy, while he's been away, has realized that his father couldn't have killed himself, therefore must have been murdered, and has come back to find out why. So he's here solving a cold case in New York. But almost as soon as he arrives, he realizes that there's a killer at work right then when he arrives in New York. And this killer is killing young black women and marking their faces to make them look like prostitutes. So clearly covering himself up in some way. So I'm going to read a little bit from the book now. And at the point at which we meet Justy, he's just come across a crime scene where Jacob Hayes, who was the, uh, the high commissioner, was actually a mayor's marshal back then, but he effectively became the high commissioner of, the, of, uh, of New York City, which meant that he was effectively New York's first policeman. And when we come across him, he's just working on a crime scene, and he's, uh, he's just cleared up a crowd which has built up, and he's just managed to defuse that situation. And uh, his men are clearing the crime scene away. Justy leaned on the railings of one of the houses, watching as a narrow-faced marshal with a bandaged hand directed the watchman. Two of them hefted the body onto the stretcher and carried it to a cart. Another threw handfuls of sawdust on the ground. The rest marched away in pairs, swinging their clubs. You there! Justy turned to see Hayes striding towards him like a seaman crossing a rolling deck. Move along now, Hayes ordered. Justy pushed himself off the railings. That was quite a speech. That bit about the dead rat played well. Hayes stopped a few yards short of him. He put his hands on his hips. Move on, I said, unless you wish my stout fellows to induce you. Justy smiled. Would you deny me the privilege and immunity to walk the streets of my own city? Hayes narrowed his eyes. Don't parrot the Constitution at me, sir, or I'll borrow a billy from one of my lads and crack your canister myself. Justy held up his hands. No need for that, Marshal. I just have a question. You're trying my patience. The victim. Was her throat cut, like the girl they find at the docks? Who says it was a woman? So I have to turn the pages. I saw your men lift her. She was too light to be a man. Hayes' face showed nothing. Perhaps it was a child. Not the way they were handling the body. They were too careless. They think she's a mole, don't they? And so do you. The way you talked about her profession just now. Her face is marked, isn't it? Hayes said nothing. Take another look at her face, Justy pressed. I'll bet the cut is fresh. Everything right, Marshal Hayes? The narrow-faced Marshal strode towards them. Quite right, Marshal Turner, Hayes said, without taking his eyes off Justy. This young man is giving me a lesson in civic order. Turner stood beside Hayes and examined Justy. His eyes were small and quick, like a bird's, darting back and forth in his pale face beneath a sharp widow's peak of dark hair. 
The bandage on his right hand looked yellow in the lamplight. His coat and breeches were made of a dark cloth, obviously expensive and meticulously tailored to his lean, compact frame. He had the, he had the air of a tightly coiled spring. If you lifted the lid, he would lunge at you. Hayes was rounder, softer. He was padded with a layer of fat and his red coat was flamboyant, but his eyes were as hard and as calculating as Turner's. The mark on the girl's face, Hayes asked Turner without looking at him. Was it a fresh cut or an old mark? Turner stared at Justy. Hard to say. He had a strong Yorkshire accent. There was blood all over her. Who was asking? What's your name, sir? Hayes asked. Justice Flanagan. Turner snorted. There's two words you don't often hear in the same sentence. Any relation to our old friend, the bull? Hayes asked. My uncle. Hayes raised an eyebrow. Did we know Ignatius has a lawyer for a nephew, Marshal? Turner hesitated. We did not. Hayes nodded thoughtfully. You have a sharp eye, Mr. Flanagan. It's a shame to think that you'll be placing your skills at your uncle's service. Justy reddened. You presume too much. I'm my own man, not some cow to be kept in a pasture until the occasion requires. Hayes smiled. Well, that's very good. Very good indeed. He looked at Turner. Are we finished here? We are. Then let us leave Mr. Flanagan to his evening walk. He glanced at Justy. And we'll take a closer look at those bodies. Justy watched them go. You weren't codding about what those Frenchies taught you then? Kerry was sitting in the shadows at the top of the steps of one of the townhomes. She had a grim look on her face. How long have you been there? he asked. Long enough. She walked down the steps and across the street to the place where the body had been. The south side of the street on both sides of the alley was bordered by an old high wall. The alley itself was a narrow tunnel, made even darker by the branches of a tree growing out of a garden behind the wall. The ground was the usual mess of horse droppings, dried mud and straw. Sawdust was scattered in a wide swath over the sidewalk and onto the street. Justy stepped into the alley and sniffed. He cut her throat. She gave him a sharp look. How do you know? He pointed. The blood. Look at the sawdust. If it hit her on the head or stabbed her, there'd be a big pool of it. But you can see it sprayed out here. That means he cut an artery. Her throat, most likely. He stepped into the alley and pressed his back to the wall. He hid like this in the shadow, which means she was coming from the north, walking on the pavement on this side of the street. He waited until she passed, then he attacked her from behind. He wrinkled his nose, and then he went back this way after. Sure, how do you know all that? Justy pointed at the sawdust. He must have come at her from behind. You can tell by the blood. If he'd been in front of her, it would have gone all over him. And I know he came back here afterwards because he vomited. You can still smell it. So that could have been anyone. It could, but why do people puke? If it's a rotten oyster, they'll take to bed first and throw up in a bucket. If it's from too much drink, the vomit smells of booze. There's no smell of liquor here. So all killers shoot the cat after their doings, do they? Her voice was heavy with sarcasm. Some do, especially if they're new to it. Even a lot of veterans puke after they kill with a knife. It's bloody and messy, and it's hard physical work. You have to hold the victim close while you're killing them, and hold them tight until it's done. She gave him a long look, her face shadowed by the moon behind her. He shook his head. Anyway, I'd say he came back here, puked and then took off. He made a last slow turn. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the moonlight catch on something shiny on the ground beside the curb. He used the toe of his boot to scuff through the filthy straw. Maybe he left something behind. It was a slim piece of light-coloured leather, longer than his hand was wide, studded with rivets that looked as though they might be silver. 
It is a knife sheath. A hunting knife, most likely, he pointed. You see the top of it's loose here? That's where the leather wraps around the handle. It means there's no guard to stop your hand slipping. And this, this hole at the end here? It's like a buttonhole. The knife this belongs to will have a knob at the end that this slides over. Probably brass or silver. Kerry peered at the sheath. Looks like you paid attention during your lessons. It's not a black art, Justy said. It's mostly just keeping your eyes open for the unusual and using your common sense to work out what happened. Kerry was looking at him, an unreadable expression in her eyes. He coloured and shrugged. It's only so useful. They catch most people through interviews of witnesses. Kerry made a face. That won't happen here, then. Nobody gives a damn about a bunch of dolly mops, and they care even less because of the colour of their skins. They walked back to the boarding house. Kerry's shoulders were hunched, her hands thrust deep into her trouser pockets. Her face was tight. Justy watched her out of the corner of his eye. Did you know that girl, Kerry? No. How would I? They passed a stable yard. There was the musty smell of wet straw. A horse muttered in the darkness. It's just you seem vexed about something, he said. She stopped. Her eyes were full of tears, but her voice was hard. You mean that some bravo can run around the city milling young negro girls and no one gives a black joke? He had the hot feeling of being slapped in the face. She started off and he let her go, head down, wiping her cheeks roughly with her sleeve. She stopped on the sidewalk. I'm sorry. No, I'm the one who should apologize. She shook her head. You already apologized too much. They were outside the boarding house. Kerry gave Justy a frank look and he felt himself redden. She grinned. I'll catch up with you later then. You will? When? Whenever I decide. She touched her fingers to the brim of her hat and winked and then slipped away into the darkness. Even more people. Thank you. Um, so I should say that uh, I, I, I haven't read this book in the audiobook version. Of course, I probably should have done, right? I asked, and they said no. Uh, it's actually written, read by a chap called Ewan Morton, who, if you don't know, is the, um, if you're familiar with the musical Hamilton, he was the first King George. So he obviously quit his job to do this one. <laughs> Really. But it was, it's been very interesting listening to that audio bit because you know, I have a voice in my head when I'm writing and I have, a, I have an idea about what the characters sound like. And Ewan's a Scotsman, although he does a great Irish accent because, you know, close enough for government work. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the, some of the pronunciations that he uses and some of the, uh, some of the intonation that he has for some of the people, it's, it's revelatory. So it, in a, as I've been listening to that you know, during this tour, I've kind of changed the way that I've been reading the book myself. And in a way, it's changed the way that the, uh, the characters are going to form in the, in, the, in the novels that come up. So it's it's been a very interesting experience. Anyway, um, I'd love to ask you if you guys have any questions for me, because I could talk all day, obviously, because you know I love the sound of my own voice. Um, but I'd like to know if you guys have any questions. Has anybody got any, anything they want to ask? It's an AMA. I did one of these on Reddit the other day, but here's, here's one I'll do today. Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. I did, I did actually, and it's it's because it's really interesting. So there's a map on the ins. If you look on the, if you have the book or you get it on the inside of the book, there's this great map on the inside, which is this is actually a map from um, 1803, um, which shows 
you can see actually where they were going to build the city. There's like some, they, you can see what, what they had planned for the city that's, uh, as, as it was being expanded. But, so I, I went into, and I looked for all the maps that I could find, and they all contradict each other. Right, it's like the Amshuis is here in one, and the Amshuis is over here in another one, and then there's the the debtors' prison is on one side of City Hall Park, and another map it's on another side. This is really frustrating. So I ended up making my own map um, on sheets of A4 that I kind of stuck together, and I still have that somewhere. But it's 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 so messy that you couldn't actually replicate it. But yeah, I had to make my own in order to make sense of what I was writing. Yeah. Yes. Sure. So this book actually started as a non-fiction project. So as as uh, Kerry mentioned earlier, so um, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, and my, my first book was an explain a financial markets explainer called Man versus Markets, which I don't think you've got here. So perhaps it's still in print. Just saying. Just recently translated to Chinese, by the way. Um, but uh, so I wanted to write a follow-up to that, which was uh, I wanted to write a history of the, of the New York Stock Exchange, specifically because I wanted to talk about how a market is created. And New York Stock Exchange was kind of created out of whole cloth, very very soon after the Panic of 1792. So I was, you know, doing a lot of research about that. And I was reading letters between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Sounds fascinating, right? And I was doing all this great, you know, research in the light in the Library of Congress and Yale Library and Harvard Library and you know the Los Angeles Public Library, and uh, it's. Intrinsically, it was fascinating, but in effect, it was actually really, really dull. I mean, really boring. So I, I, I found that I was doing so much research and not doing any writing. I thought, well, I'll just to keep my hand in, I'll kind of write a little murder mystery on the side into the narrative. And eventually, all my energy just got sucked towards that. But the and, and the the nonfiction project has been confined to like a, a, a dusty file in my hard drive somewhere. So if anybody knows a publisher who wants a history of the New York Stock Exchange, I could pull that out and produce that real fast. So if anyone's got any connections. But it meant that I had all of that research kind of you know bubbling up, and I was drawing on all of that when I actually when I wrote this. But the you know the 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 financial part of this because there's a little bit of finance in this as well. The financial part of this really got shrunk down in the end because you know the murder takes over. So finance is more of a frame than than anything else. Great question. Thank you. Yes. It's all fabricated. So really, it's, it's, it's funny you ask me this because um, I'm actually reading a great book right now called Forensics by Val McDermott. I don't know if anybody's a, f a fan of, of British crime fiction, but she's almost the, the queen of, of modern British crime fiction. So Agatha Christie's successor, just with more slashing and serial killers. But uh, she has written this great book called Forensics, and in it she really makes the point that forensics didn't really start being anything until about 1850. The French were the, really the, uh, the, the leaders in that field, which is why I had Justy go to Paris, because the, the French had a police force way before anybody else. Right? The, the British started to have, um, they had a, a, a Thames kind of constabulary that, that looked after the boats on the Thames because there was so much thievery going on on the Thames back then. In, in the very late 1700s, like 1798, 1799. And, uh, but the French had had a gendarmerie for a hundred years before that. So they had like a full-on police force. They had a, it wasn't called the, the Police Nationale, but it was something similar to that. And in, they had detectives in Paris. So I figured that, you know, some of these, they would have picked up some of these forensic techniques sort of just naturally, just by seeing what went on. Although, you know, I, I have to back out of that a little bit because Val also says that there was a book published 
by uh, in China in 1210, I think she says that there was some kind of use of, of, of forensic entomology, the use of insects to to determine whether or not you know how long bodies have been you know lying around for. So it, it is a it is a very old science, but it really only kicked in in the way that we know it in a, in a, around about 1850. Question. Thank you. Any other questions, Michael? Well, I had to make a fair bit. So, you know, if you read this, there, there are a bunch of books, um, great novels uh, about this that, that are written around this period. In fact, a little bit before this period in New York. Um, I think well, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, the, the Golden Mile. I think one of them, no, not the Golden Mile. The Golden something. Like that. Anyway, the um, but it's written in very archaic speech. You know, in, in the way that we might expect. You know, how now, good fellow? And I thought I don't want to write like that. I want to. I want to write it so that it's it's accessible. So what I thought I'd do is I'd, you know, maybe have it a little bit sort of stilted in some ways, at, in some at some parts. But I'd use slang to kind of get get the 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 period across. And so slang is really, really helpful because you, you, you hear some crazy slang, you're like, oh, you're right there, because it sounds so foreign, even though they're speaking English, but there's this other thing going on. So slang was what I relied on. And there were, there were two great um, uh, resources for slang. The first is a guy called Francis Groves wrote a dictionary of London slang, of London criminal slang, uh, right around 1830. And then uh, also in New York, almost simultaneously in New York, um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with a writer called Lindsay Fay, who wrote a book called Gods of Gotham, and actually wrote a follow-up to that. Anyway, she, uh, it's a great book if you're interested in historical fiction in New York. She wrote a book that's set in 1840s New York, which is when the real police department was actually created, and they actually had you know, guys running around with, with stars on. And there was a, one of the administrators of the police force back then actually compiled a, a, a dictionary of, of underground New York waterfront slang. So I was able to pull from those and, and, and use terms that they actually did use. And it was great fun to do it, you know. And then, and then I still I got a few Irish words and, you know, a couple of Scottish words. But yeah, that's, it's a bit of a witch's brew, that one. Yes? Thank you. Yeah, Hamilton's is, is a fascinating character because uh, in 1792, when the economy nearly collapsed, uh, Alexander Hamilton got together with Thomas Jefferson, or didn't really get together, they were writing letters. I think they couldn't stand the sight of each other, so they wrote letters to each other. And uh, Hamilton basically said, look, you know, the economy nearly collapsed because, you know, clearly we have this, this tool of Wall Street, uh, you know, where people are trading, and if people are, they borrow too much money, and what, what actually happened was, just to back out a little bit, there was a speculator, a guy called William Durer, who appears in the book nominally, uh, he basically borrowed vast amounts of money to speculate wildly on government bonds and bank and bank stocks. There weren't very many banks in existence then. But he borrowed heavily to, to speculate on this stuff. And uh, when the market moved against him, he lost all of his money. And he couldn't pay back any of the money that he owed to other people. And they then couldn't pay back people that they owed money to. And so they, they panicked. They thought, oh my gosh, there's not enough money in the system. So there was a run on the banks, which means they all, everybody went to the bank and tried to get their money out all at the same time. And as a result, there was a, a, there was a liquidity crisis and all the banks stopped lending to each other. Does any of this sound familiar? Right? 
I know, it's fascinating, right? It was almost a replication. You had one person who was able to, you know, bring the economy to a complete halt, or certainly the financial system. The same thing happened in 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed. So, and what happened was Alexander Hamilton had to step in and find ways, he sort of a hodgepodge of ways to make the banks feel the, more confident and so they would actually start lending to each other again. So, so in a way, almost a replication of what happened uh, whenever um, Hank Paulson and all the rest of them responded to the financial crisis, rightly or wrongly. And when he did this, Thomas Jefferson told him that he was not doing the right thing. And of course, many people in 2008 said that Hank Paulson was doing the wrong thing. And Tim Geithner said, you, you should just let these, these banks fail. So in the aftermath of that, Hamilton said, look, we need to put some rules around this system. Right now, there are no rules. The only rules that existed in America at that time were, were for, for crimes against property and person. So if you, damn it, if you hurt somebody or you stole from them, then you could be convicted. But everything else was fair game. You could sell dodgy mortgages to old ladies all day long. You know, you would get away with any of that stuff. You could, any kind of financial shenanigans, because there were no rules. And Hamilton said, look, let's put some rules in place. And Jefferson said, no. People can self-regulate. People can look after. The, we're, we're adults. We know how. We know what can go wrong now. Everyone will regulate themselves. So it meant that, and, and of course, then they, they agreed on that. But this was this great conversation that Hamilton and Jefferson were having over a long period. Of course, Jefferson won the argument, and it meant that we lurched from crisis to crisis until 1923, which was when the first laws that were put around the securities business and the, the financial markets. So that's about 150 years of you know lurching from crisis to crisis, which is insane when you think about it. So that was a great question. Thank you. Yes. Hmm, that's a good question. So when I was, uh, I don't really know actually. I just, you know, I wanted. So yeah, I, uh, there was no no one in no one in particular. But when I was thinking about this character, Justy Flanagan, I wanted someone uh, who didn't quite fit. Because I, I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've worked in a number of jobs and, and I've lived in a number of places, and I've never. I've never really felt that I fitted anywhere in any of these places, so I wanted to kind of have that feeling—the feeling of not of being in, in the place and everything feels right, but something's just not quite right. So I wanted to have that, and I'd, I've actually written novels in the past that have characters like that, and they've never really worked. So I thought, you know, let's have a let's have a character who's—he's Catholic, he's Irish, he's trained as a lawyer, he's come to New York, and he just doesn't quite fit. And the reason he wouldn't have fitted, by the way, if I can digress for a second, is because. The Irish weren't welcome in New York at that in 1799. You know, they must have the Irish who'd, who'd been crushed under the boot heel of England and the British for the, last, the, the previous 200 years must have looked across the Pacific, uh, sorry, across the Atlantic, um, after the Revolutionary War and said, "Wow, these guys have figured it out. They've got rid of the king. They've got rid of all the king's rules. Let's go there because you know they'll welcome us with open arms. We'll be free and we'll be able to, you know, to, to live our lives." But of course, New York was effectively an English city and had been an English city for a hundred years. And just because the king's soldiers and the king's rules went, didn't mean the English went with them. So the Irish arrived in New York and found that they had just exchanged one form of discrimination for another. Perhaps not as brutal, but every bit as crushing. You know, because they, they were they were Irish, they were regarded as subhuman. They were depicted as apes in whenever pe people. Uh, uh, wrote, uh, did sketches of them. Because they were Catholic, it meant they were shut out of all government positions, mostly of society. They weren't, they weren't allowed to be educated because the universities wouldn't accept Catholics. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty tough break for them. So I felt that this here was a guy who would, had all the qualifications and all the skills, but just wouldn't, quite, wouldn't fit that well and would have to, to make his way. 
Um, Kerry initially was a much smaller character, but when I, I workshopped this at the, the Banff Centre in Alberta, and one of my instructors said, maybe you should make your key character a woman. Maybe, should, maybe should change the whole thing, just make it through a woman's eyes. It's like, okay, I won't do that so much, but maybe this should be, should, the female character should be more more present, so I kind of built her up a bit. As for Justy's uncle, the bull, well, I have to say, I'm a big fan of Gangs of New York, the movie, and, you know, there were all sorts of characters that kind of made me think about him. Thank you very much. Good question. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot, actually. Um, when I went to that workshop at Banff, um, I'd, I brought about two-thirds of the novel with me, and... Uh, after I after I was done, they said, "Yeah, keep going, but you know, change this, this, and this." So I threw half of it out at that point, and then and then kept writing. But one of my favorite bits uh, that I threw out was so if you look, if you look at the cover, that's actually if you know New York, the geography of New York, it's a view up Broad Street to Wall Street. So the building that you're looking at at the top there is actually Federal Hall, which today has a, a large statue of George Washington at the front of it. Um, but it was, of course, the seat of the first Continental Congress because New York for a while was the capital of the United States. So that's the cross street of Broad and Wall. And while I was uh, reading about New York, I, I learned that Broad Street is, well, I've been there, it is very broad, right? And the reason it's so broad is because it used to be a canal. Whenever uh, New York was first settled as New Amsterdam, there was a canal there and the, uh, the Dutch would paddle up the canal and they had um, warehouses on either side and they would unload goods and sell things out of the warehouses. But eventually, of course, the canal, because, because it's New York, right, it got really crowded, traffic was really bad. So they said, right, and, and it got filthy too. It was, there were all these great stories about how bad it smelled. So they said, right, we're going we're gonna to close the canal, we're just going to pave it over. Okay, we'll fill it in and pave it over. Except that they didn't fill it in. They just put wood over the top of it and then they paved over the top. So there's a tunnel under there. And this is another amazing thing is there were all these subterranean tunnels in New York of rivers and, and you know, waterways that have just been covered over and they still exist. And, and some buildings actually have a lot of problems with damp because the river actually runs around the buildings through the past the foundations. Anyway, so I, I read about this and I thought, I should have a scene down there. So there's a great scene where people were down in the tunnels and they had torches, there were rats and then people were stabbing each other. It was, it was way too camp, I had to get rid of it. It was, it was fun writing it though, it's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Ah, the, the mechanics. Well, initially, um, I started writing it when I still had a job, and then I thought uh, this this isn't going to work because I was sort of doing it in the afternoons and spending you know most weekends writing, and you know, and I and I so I said, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to actually quit quit the job become a freelancer so that I can give myself large blocks of time, like blocks of two weeks. So then I would have, I, I would have a, my two-week block and I, would, and I would have to, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd you know, make my list of things that I had to do and then I would leave the house because I've got this great room in my house that I can write in. It's, it's beautiful. The sun comes in, it's a standing desk, it's fabulous. But I can't write in the house because if you write in the house, you're like, oh, I should redo the laundry or uh, those baseboards need painting or you know, whatever it is. And then you, you get distracted. So I would leave the house and I'd, just, I'd go to either the Silver Lake Library or the Los Feliz Library or like a friendly coffee shop because I don't know if the library has odd opening hours. So on a Wednesday, for example, it doesn't open until noon. Anyway, I could go on. So I spent a lot of time in Starbucks as well so and, and I would and I would I, I made it like a job and I would say okay so I, I know I'm most productive in the morning so I'll do five hours and I would I would get in there at nine o'clock and I would do five hours and I would not take a break 
maybe go for a, like a coffee for half an hour or something if I'm in the library or I got too cold because it's freezing in there let me tell you and uh, after that then then I can crack my list and do all the other stuff so you know and I found that if I did because I, I okay so many former colleagues here um, I found that you know when you're when you're working and you're doing eight hours a day, it's not really eight hours, right? I mean, you know, it's probably actually five hours productive work, you know, once you're done with Facebook and, you know, chat, <laughs> chatting to John Buckley in the kitchen and going for a coffee or whatever it is, you know. Once you've got all that squared away. So I figured if I can do five hours solid productive writing, then I'm in good shape. And that, actually, that's, that kind of worked out pretty well. So yeah, so this, so yeah, so, so Macmillan very kindly bought two of these, which is great. So they've they bought a sequel. Uh, it's and the working title of the sequel is Hudson's Kill. Um, the kill, a kill, of course, is a, is a body of water. It's like a stream or a little 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 brook, but it also means stabbing people. So it's great. So it's great. People on Twitter. So so Hudson's Kill has been delivered to the editor. Second, the second draft. So she's she's got it right now. Um, my agent thinks it's magnificent, obviously, because she's a great agent. Um, so I'm hoping that within a year uh, I could be standing here again, chatting to you again about book two, and uh, that would wouldn't that be nice? Meanwhile, um, I'm pitching three and four, and um, you know, and I've got an idea for five and six. In fact, um, I, I was talking to uh, my publisher in my editor in, in the UK, who works at Atlantic Books, and she's Irish. Sarah O'Keefe is her name, and uh, I said, oh, I've got this great idea for book three. Justy goes to London, and you know, it's this this place um, is this character close to the Tower of London, and the way this and that, and she's and there was there was sort of silence. So is there a problem with that? Is it, is, is it too early for him to leave America? She goes, well, if he's going to leave America, he should really go to Dublin, shouldn't he? <laughs> so that's number five. I think. Or maybe number three, I don't know. It's, 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 that's, that's coming up, yeah. Did you, so you have, do you have a question? <laughs> that was a funny process, yeah. So uh, initially, um, the, the working title was "Raising the Wind," which means it is a it's a it's a frame it's a phrase for raising money, right? So it was, it was all about that. But I and I was, and we were, everybody liked it. Everybody in the publishing house liked it. But there was nobody who really raved about it. And then I started shopping it around some of my friends, who would, who would, I'd say, they'd say, "What's the title?" I say, "Raising the Wind." <laughs> so I was like farting, you know. I thought, okay, I mean, not very many of my kind of friends. But some of them, enough of them, and I said, let's rethink, let's rethink the title. And uh, I had, um, whilst I was doing research, like almost at the very beginning of the research, I'd come across this phrase, but I'd totally forgotten it, and I'd put it in my notes. And I was going through notes and looking, oh, is there anything that kind of jumped out at me? And I had, it was, it was because when you're thinking about these things, you, I was drawing these word maps, you know, this, so with the huge word maps, all these sort of words about murder and finance and all the rest of it, and, I, and, and nothing came up. And then I was sort of going through this, uh, this notebook and I saw this phrase, I thought, oh great, is that real? So then I had to find it again, so I was doing all this research to find it. And it's, it's mentioned just, it's not a, it wasn't actually a very common phrase. This is the other thing about this, is that, so Wall Street, the devil's half mile. I went on Google and I measured it. It's, it's not a half mile. <laughs> It's not a half mile today, okay? And back then, it would have been less than half mile because all the landfill. So it would have been about a third of a mile, but the devil's third of a mile just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Yeah. Anyway, so, yes, it's a great question. Thank you.
Yeah, so um, I think, is it in this one? So one of the really interesting things I found out when I was uh, reading about Irish history is, is how much the Irish were against, how much Catholics were discriminated against back then. Like, popery back in the early 1800s was just, you know, if you were Catholic, you'd be lucky you wouldn't get burned at the stake, literally. I mean, you were literally shut out of pretty much everything. And I found that one of the things that survives, there's not that much in the way of newspapers that survives, but a lot of anti-Catholic tracts survive. There's a lot of writing, and a lot of these tracts are sort of, you know, two or three pages long that used to get, you know, you know, stuck, you know, hammered to doors and handed around. And some of them are really kind of virulent. So uh, they, they actually appear more in the second book as, as, the, as the book of the first book, but they were very much kind of part of the, uh, the, envir the literary environment that I was reading when I saw it. The other, the other great source of inspiration for me was not so much um, newspapers, but was the Library of Congress. Because what used to happen, and I guess this kind of was like newspapers, in a way it was like newspapers, because people used to travel back then and then write about their travels and publish them. And uh, the Library of Congress has got this great collection of travelogues of people who would, and from all, all parts of the world, uh, you know, from France, from Germany, from the UK or from England, traveling around America. And also from parts of America, there's a great account by um, a gentleman from South Carolina who traveled through um, Massachusetts for three months and wrote about his, his travels. And they were published in various publications. So you can pull those out of the Library of Congress and read them. Some of them are just hilarious. And they're, they're, that's another way of getting an idea of the way people spoke because they were much less formal than the way that they, people wrote letters to each other. Yes? Whoa, it's such a good one. Yeah, no, Agatha Christie is one of my favorites. She's, I think she's probably, uh, she's right up there with one of the people that, I mean, if there's anybody I would like to be like, it's Agatha Christie, but it's, she takes so much, her stuff is so well plotted. And I, I read that when she used to, when she used to write one of her books, she would literally, she would have this, all these sheets of paper stuck together on the floor and she'd been, this person did this at this time, and this person did that at that time, plotted all out before she could write the book. So um, that's a little too much for me. I just want to kind of write it, <laughs> see what comes out. But uh, if, if you're interested in in that type of uh, book, there's, uh, there's, I was reading something the other day called The Magpie Murders by a guy called uh, Anthony Horowitz, which is kind of like an, a modern-day Agatha Christie-type book. It's, I mean, fantastic, really good murder mystery if you're into that stuff. Yes? Yeah, so I, I got into, I was never really into it when I was, I was into thrillers when I was a kid. So I was reading like Alistair MacLean and Sven Hassel, and anything about the war basically, and you know, people smuggling gold and all that kind of stuff, you know, in the war, uh, in the Second World War. So I, I really wasn't really into murder mystery until about, I guess about 10 years ago. And um, I can't, I'm, I'm not sure where I started. I mean, I'd read Agatha Christie when I was a kid, and I'm not really sure what it was that got me started, but I remember at one point somebody put uh, the first Lee Child in front of me, his his debut called Killing Floor. I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this is, it's such a, like, it's, it's such a driving plot. It's like a really good, very, very linear, you know, just keeps you going the whole time. And and then I, I read about how he wrote it, and apparently, he was a former TV guy, he used to work for independent television in the UK, he was laid off. And he and him and his wife decided to move to the U.S. Uh, I think she was American. And um, when he got to the U.S., he bought three exercise books. You know those A5 books you used to have when you were a kid? So he bought three of those on an HB pencil. And he started to write. And he filled these books up. And he gave them to his wife. And he says, is this any good? And she went, yeah, we should keep going. 
<laughs> and and he and that and he wrote his book. And I thought, well, if he, if he can do it, then I can do it. So that was that was really, and that's that, that I say is about a decade ago. So it's been about ten years getting from Flash to Bang, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I you know I really wanted to have this financial thing in there, and I really wanted to. I, I kind of wanted to. So one of the big themes is I wanted to talk about uh, how how if you don't have rules, then things just don't work that well, right? You know, because fear and greed, if there's enough fear and greed and there's enough money involved, then, you know, it doesn't matter how much sort of social convention there is. People are just going to go, screw it, I'm, I'm going to lose my house, therefore I'm going to break all the laws, you know, or I'm going to make, you know, $17 million, so I'm going to break all the laws. So I really wanted to have that as a frame. Initially, I had that as the main story, but it just didn't work because, you know, no matter how horrible it is, these, these, no matter how terrible these financial crimes are and how many people they can hurt, including an entire economy, they're just not that sexy, you know? So it's a lot, so, you know, to have a, to have a murder there, so you can, so you're, you're watching people being killed or somebody hunting a murderer where the stakes are really, really high, and you've got this other stuff going on in the background, and I'm hoping that the message sort of comes across subliminally that way. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think you know my okay, maybe a little political here, but um, so my personal view on this is that the uh, that regulation is an important thing, right? You know, we're we're all human beings, and for the most part, we probably can look after ourselves. You know, we probably can do the right thing, but sometimes we don't. And there are some people who are immoral, and they don't want to do the right thing, and they're greedy, and they you know want to you know benefit themselves at the at the uh, at the cost of other people. And I think that you know, as a result, what we want to have what we want to have are really, really basic rules. We don't want to have a 2300-page document called Dodd-Frank, which has a billion rules and is stuffed full of all sorts of stuff that just, you know, just gets in the way. Make it simple and enforce it so that when people break those rules, they go to jail. You know, this is the other thing about the financial crisis. Nobody went to jail, right? I mean, people went to jail in the aftermath of it, but only because they were fiddling money that came, you know, from the, uh, uh, the, the money that was pumped into the system by the government. So nobody actually went to jail for doing the wrong thing initially. I have, I have no idea. I mean, if, if the government wants to pay me, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, I'll sit in an office and work them out. But, but I think it's pretty simple. It's like, you know, we all know, you know, you know, you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You know, you know when something is, somebody is doing something wrong. And I think you can legislate effectively to, to make sure that people don't cross those lines. I mean, that's, that's my personal point of view. I mean, I, I, I know that there are plenty of people who would like to debate me about that, and I'd be happy to do that some other time. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that really surprised me was was how much I learned about Irish history because, you know, I thought that would really be that's sort of just the the color, right? These people are Irish and da 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 da, da. but then I started to think about, you know, where do these people come from? And 
I don't know if you know this about me, those who know me. So I, I was brought up in Ireland in the Protestant tradition, pretty much. I mean, I went to non-denominational schools, but they were effectively Protestant schools, which means that you get, you get, you know, taught the Protestant line. And you don't learn about, you know, what happened, generally, to Catholics, to Irish Catholics in that period. I mean, you know, you learn that, yes, the English occupied Ireland for 300, 300 odd years, and they made a mess of it. But you don't really learn anything more than that. And the more I read, the more I realized just how appalling the occupation of Ireland by the by the English was. I mean, it was absolutely. I mean, I've, I've spent some time in Bosnia Herzegovina, so I know what we talk about when we talk about ethnic cleansing. And it was every bit of that. You know, I mean, it was outrageous the things that went on, and you know, mass killings. We talk about you know, me lie in Vietnam, mass killings by the English. Five hundred people on the Curra, you know, in half an hour. You know, at one point in, in 1798. So the more I read about this, the more I felt actually that I was. It, it made me reframe my whole way of thinking about my own heritage. And I felt kind of cheated by my own education in a way. So that was a real surprise to me. And there are, there are a couple of scenes in there. And they're more kind of accounts of what of what happened, which you know I learned about when I was reading about the awful atrocities that, that that occurred back then. And those are real; those are they are taken from historical accounts. And I was really surprised to find them. When I you know I know bad things happen in war, but I was really surprised to find that. But most of all, I was surprised about how the the effect it had on me. Yes. I think I left those bits out. Yeah, because the, yeah, they did happen, and I'm like, I can't, I can't. That's just too much, you know. But because, but also, you know, sometimes, you know, because Justy is this kind of, he's this brooding character, and and he would he would do things, and I'd be like, that's too, he's doing, that's too much. I can't, I can't. But that is it's just way, and and maybe that's where he'll go eventually, you know. Maybe the, over time, as he gets older, and he gets maybe he gets more jaded, or maybe something happens to him, and you know, he responds in that way. But it was too early for that. So yeah, it did happen. But for the most part, I think that, that uh, and that that tended to be all the kind of slashery stuff. That so it was a little too much. The I don't know if you've seen if anyone seen the UK cover. It's a white cover with like. Uh, the Devil's Half Mile is written in sort of gothic script, and there's a splatter of blood across the cover, which is kind of cool. So yeah, it's kind of the way I was feeling it. I was feeling that at the time. Yeah. It's a great question. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. No. Keep going. So I, I found the um, I, th I thought that the uh, the action scenes were going to be hard. It's, I think it was really hard to write action. I mean, I actually, to be honest, the hardest. Somebody asked me this on a Reddit AMA the other day. It's like, what's the hardest thing to the hardest scene to write? And for me, it's it's sex. I can't write it. I don't know why. I can't. You know, I love scenes. I'm okay with. I can't. I can't go any further than that. I don't know why it is. It's just a block. So you know. Um, so, but violence. I'm fine with violence. I can do violence all day long. Uh, what does that say? There's a lot of therapists in this room that are going to be analyzing me. Uh, so, uh, but so I was really worried about the violence because it's hard to write good action. I've, you know, I've read a lot of great thrillers who write amazing action. I'm like, how do they do that? And then I find myself writing it. I was I wrote too long and then I wrote too short. So that was the hardest thing for me. But uh, once I once I once I kind of trusted myself and just got into it, 
it, it all came. And I think the scene, one of the last, I guess the last big fight scene was the one that just kind of tripped on really, really fast. I was really pleased with it. I kind of did it in a day, and I was like, well, I hardly had to change it at all, so I was really pleased. But that's, but for the most part, I found that hard. Yeah. Any other burning questions? Six foot one. <laughs> if I stand up straight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, let me think of a question somebody asked me the other day, um, which was about the, the cover. A another question about covers is like, you know, were there any fights over the cover? Because a lot of, it was, it's interesting to compare this this cover with the UK cover, as I say, which is totally different. And the UK cover actually, if you've seen, it's got, it's got Paddy Hirsch and there's a little skull in the middle. And people who are from Boston will know this. If you, if you go to the old graveyards in Boston, Massachusetts, they have those little skulls on the graveyards. And so when I when I saw this cover, I, I the, the UK cover, I took it back to I went to the I went to see the publishers in the UK, and I said, "This is amazing because this skull that you've got, it's on the tombstones in Massachusetts." They're like, what? No way! They had no idea. They they'd never they had no idea, but they just kind of I guess they find it in a bit of clip art and bunged it on there for a laugh. But it was yeah, it was it was cool. But the um, when we were designing this cover. Um, which I'm not sure actually authors usually get that much choice in the matter. It's usually like, do you like this cover? Because if you don't, uh, but they, they said, we need to think of a cover. What should we put on? And I, I mentioned earlier that they were talking about putting the characters on the cover. And so I gave them these, these characters and um, they said, uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll send you a couple of examples, see if you like them. And the stuff they sent me was all, I don't know, there was, all, was lots of velvet, you know. There were these fluff, flir in these these fluffy shirts that were sort of unbuttoned to the navel. It was very Fabio, you know. Lots of hair tumbling down. It's like no, this please no. That's just way too. I'm not writing a romance novel, am I? It's made me second guess myself. So that was that was quite fun. But apparently the um, you know cover because covers are a big deal. So I, I was but I'm pretty pleased pretty pleased with the way this one came out. And I like the location of it too. And I like what they did with the inside with the map. Which is excellent. Yeah, yeah. You should know, by the way, um, if you're going to pick this book up today, I hope you will. There is a glossary in the back because I was talking about slang before, and some people, you know, some people, you know, it's like we're all different, right? Some people can roll with it. We're like, oh, I'll figure it out. I, I can kind of figure it out as I go along. Some people need to know what that word means. There is a glossary in the back. And there's some actually some really cool slang from back then. Um, I think one of my favourites is, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty giggly. Um, so balderdash, we all know what balderdash is, right? It means rubbish. We all, that's kind of a common phrase now. But back then it used to mean diluted liquor. Um, a screwsman, could be naughty, is a lock breaker. And, uh, and to suck the monkey, which is my personal favorite, is, uh, actually means to go binge drinking. So you could actually pepper your own vernacular with some great phrases. There's a lot of terms for drinking and alcohol in this book because there was a lot of drinking going on. There was, and there were also a lot of terms for criminality too because, as I said before, there were no rules back then. Nobody, you, you could pretty much do whatever you want. Like I say, if you hurt somebody, if you killed them, you went to jail. If you stole something from somebody or you, uh, you were a debtor, you ran out of money, you went bankrupt, you went to jail. But for everything else, it was pretty much carte blanche. So, you know, prostitution, no problems. You know, uh, selling dodgy securities to people, no problems, whatever. I mean, you could, you know, even if you, uh, you know, sold, you know, dodgy muscles to people on a pier, as long as nobody died, you know, you, were, you could get away with pretty much anything you wanted to. So there's, you know, it, it's a really interesting period because having thrown off 
all of that government regulation, you know, post the, the Tea Party, having thrown off all that government regulation at the end of the, uh, the, the Revolutionary War, they said, well, we don't want to have any rules anymore. And that meant that we had this almost a lawless society for, to, 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 for, for a great degree up until right around 1860 when the huge waves of Irish immigrants came across and Manhattan had to grow into the city that it is today. That's another interesting thing. So if you look at this map, so this is the tip of Manhattan, if you can see it, if you've got a book. And you can see that really just the, it really was only built up to about where City Hall is today, if you're familiar with New York. So if you think about how big Manhattan is now, in 1806, they had produced a map that had, pl had planned out the whole of the island of Manhattan. So they decided, right, the whole city, this, this whole island is going to be built on. Everyone's going to be living on this island. We need to start building now. And they've drawn up a plan, which is, I mean, crazy if you think about it. But if you look at the map, it's almost ex it looks almost exactly what New York looks like today. The only difference really is that uh, there's a big hole cut out now where Central Park is. They didn't have that back then. But it's, you know, if you think about the strains on a city that has to grow that fast. In 18, sorry, in 1780, New York was, there was only 60,000 people in New York. It doubled in size every 20 years after that until 1860 when it, when it hit a million. So if you think about that, from 1780 to 1860, from 60,000 to a million. And then you think about the scale of that growth beyond up until, you know, 1900, when I think it was like six million or something crazy. So, you know, that's a, and, and you think if you have a city like that, that's growing that fast, that has no rules, you know, God knows what's going to go on in a, in a place like that. It'd be crazy. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting time to write about. And it's fascinating because there's very little written about it. And there's very little popular fiction that's written in this area. There's not that much in terms of history that's written about it. There's like this gap between the end of the Revolutionary War and, uh, you know, sort of 1740, or sorry, 1840, when the Irish start to come in big numbers and really change the, uh, the face of the city. So, you know, if you're interested in history at all, it's a great sort of, it's a great start to get you in there. And, you know, then you can go to the Library of Congress and read all the stuff that I read, which is great. Yes? Is the glossary? That's a very good question. There, it should be, shouldn't it? I, maybe I'll do my own. Maybe I'll do my own and put it online. That's a great idea, actually. I'm going to do that. Yes. Where's my social media manager? Can you help me with that? Yeah. Yes. This one's from 1803. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, no, no. This one's, this one's, this was the one that I really went with in the end. So, I mean, so many people were making maps back then. I mean, you know, because the British made loads of maps, you know, during the war, and then they were, they were uh, making maps for um, development of these, these particular areas in, in the period after. But it's like, you know, you'll get a map that's dated 1800, and there used to be a pond, a big pond, right about where, if you know New York at all, right about where Little Italy, Little Italy is today. There used to be a big pond that was a freshwater pond that they filled in. And there are maps from 1800 that have got that pond filled in. I'm like, well, that can't be right. You know, so you, there, there, are, there are triggers that tell you, oh, this is clearly a speculative map. Because a lot of them were, you know, developers putting maps together to, to plan what they were going to build in the next five years. So, but it, did get a little, it could get a little confusing. I've answered all your questions. My God, I've done well. Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. 
and we hope to see you soon.